Death Triathlon Show 374. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview coach and professional triathlete Melanie McQuaid. Mel is a multiple Xterra world champion, so in her previous appearance on the podcast we discussed mostly Xterra and off-road triathlon in general, but since 2014 or so she has focused on long-distance road triathlons, so 7.3s and Ironman racing, and that is also where a lot of her coaching focus is, so this will be our topic for today. If you want some inspiration, it is well worth going to the PTO website and having a look at Mel's uh, list of results, and in particular her more recent race results keeping in mind that she is now 49 turning 50 this year so that can serve as some motivation and inspiration for anybody i think because it's quite impressive before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools education and a patented patented sweat test you can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate sodium and fluid intake and you can also book a free 20 minute video consultation to chat through your plan with their athlete support team as a salty sweater myself their highly concentrated electrolytes are super important to me in races and in long workouts and uh, to me there are no gels that are as good and as easy to consume even in large quantities as the precision fuel gels you can get 15 percent off your first order by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Form. Form Swart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens. You can see every split to the hundredth of a second. You can get live stroke rate and even live heart rate through integration with polar heart rate monitors. All of this helps executing your swim workouts more optimally with better control of intensity and better pacing. You also get access to in-depth post-swim analysis with additional metrics in the Form app. And the app syncs your workouts seamlessly to platforms like Training Peaks, Strava, Today's Plan and Final Search. The app also has a vast library of workouts and training plans, or you can build your own guided workouts. Get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Melanie McQuaid. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, Melanie. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for uh, for introducing me again. I, I really appreciate that, as not only as a you know, as a, as a coach, but also as a fan of the podcast, it's really exciting for me to be here today and to be part of it. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And, uh, yeah, the honor is, is mine. And I remember our previous episode very clearly, even though it was some 180 episodes ago, 180 weeks ago. So I think 2019, the end of 2019 is when we talked. So some time has passed, but it, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great one. So I'm happy to, to do another, uh, another interview. But uh, since we have a lot of new listeners since then, can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Melanie McQuaid. Um, I think my uh, primary palmares for a career are as an as an off-road triathlete. So I won three Xterra World Championships and I won two of the I2 Multisports. Um, and then prior to that, I was a mountain bike racer. So I raced uh, with the Canadian national team for a long time. Um, most of my success as a mountain biker was at short tracks. So I was uh, like, I won the Sea Otter short track and I had a lot of like short track victories and a lot fewer um, cross country and like 
cross country at that time was a lot longer. So it's kind of funny that I'm in endurance now. Um, and I raced with the road national team as well. So I've been to the UCI road world championships when they were in France. Um, and I raced as a road racer, uh, like frequently during my mountain bike career, but I actually did a year where I was, um, attempting to become an actual, uh, road racer. Um, but that was before I embarked on a, a long career in Xterra, which I was really happy with and, and had a lot of success, uh, before I switched to Ironman 70.3 in, um, like seriously in 2012. And that was the year I went Oceanside. And then in 2015, I did my first, Ironman. Um, and then I proceeded to shatter my ankle and spent about four years rehabbing that rather than retiring. Um, and now I think I'm, I'm more known as a, like I, I coach uh, a small squad of athletes um, under the Melrad coaching brand uh, and they're the Melrad racing team. Uh, but I also um, am gaining a little notoriety for re- re- refusing to retire <laughs> as a pro um, because honestly, like I mean, for good reason, as, as like, as I've described my career, like my Ironman racing has been continually improving and, um, I'm, I'm going to be 50 in this year. Um, and so I decided that freedom 50 might be a thing, but, uh, I'm definitely going to continue racing as a pro this year, um, and attempt to like achieve the last few goals that are on my bucket list, which are qualify for Kona, um, win an Ironman and, um, potentially choose a really fast race and go under nine hours. So, um, so, so that's me. (laughs) Um, and some people know me, uh, like from way back when I was more of a, like a a dirt triathlete. Um, but now I'm certainly a lot more of an Ironman athlete and most of my group is more Ironman, but certainly like my history in off-road, um, colors, some of the experience I have and some of the athletes I have are in gravel or road racing and and cycling as well yeah and for listeners that weren't around back then in our previous interview in episode 196 we talked a lot about xterra so um yeah just uh, that was the main topic of the interview and uh it's funny i went to have a look at your results on the pto website uh earlier today and uh and it's it's very impressive because 2012 as you say is when you transitioned to uh, to really focus on the long distance seven one three and and then Ironman and uh, and and I, at that time so you must have been what thirty nine thirty eight so yeah. no spring chicken compared to <laughs> what a lot of people would have been that you raced against but but yeah as you say like you have been continuing continuing to get some good results and that is despite the fact that the competition over these ten years has been getting stronger and stronger if you look at your 2022 racing you had you raced a lot and you had some really good results a podium i think in lake ironman lake placid uh i think your what sixth place in ironman arizona was was quite impressive because that was a a very competitive field so it's it, it is very impressive and it's something we'll talk about how you have stayed competitive well into your 40s uh getting close to 50 now and and also what general advice you would give to uh to listeners in that pos- uh, position or but uh, we'll get to that a bit later in the in the interview so let's start with first some general discussion about your training approach to long distance road triathlon 73 and an ironman so you can just, uh, I'll give you a, uh, a blank slate here to give an overview uh, and starting in whatever end you'd like. 
Okay. Well, first off, thank you so much for like your nice words about my, my season. Um, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, so, so when you asked me that question, it, it was, I, I think that when you talk about approaching Ironman or approaching 70.3, really what you're talking about sort of is your philosophy. And I think, um, I think the underlying thing that, um, that I think about when it comes to coaching is that this is a relationship, right? So it's like two humans, um, athletes aren't machines. And so you, you can't just like apply an algorithm to a, a human because there's, there's so much more to that. Um, and, and my feelings about that are, are colored by what my bias is. So I'm just going to sort of like introduce myself from like, what is my like personal philosophy and then my coaching philosophy and then my training philosophy, because those three things really sort of color how I approach all of this. Right. So if I look at what my personal philosophy is, I did this like during the pandemic, I went and did like that. I think it's Brené Brown that came up with like, what are your key values? Because like as a person, once you know what your your like base key values are, it helps you just decide what you're going to do. Because if if they don't like sort of align with what those values are, then you're never going to feel good about whatever that decision is. Um, and so my personal philosophy is growth and health. <clears throat> it explains a lot. It explains why like I just have a dog. <laughs> it explains why I really like want to continue being healthy for a long time. Um, and it explains why I'm like really, um, ravenous about education. Like I, I have learned so much like in the past five years. Um, and every time I learn something, it opens up another door for me to learn a lot more. So like during the pandemic, I was like, I think I'm weak as a, like on in combining my strength training with my like triathlon programs. And so I, I basically consumed a huge amount of information and mentorship and internship on like the specifically strength training stuff in order to be good at that because growth as a coach is super important to me. So growth and health really are, are me. So then if I go and I look at like what my coaching philosophy is, um, that really exposes my bias as a coach. And I think this is really important for athletes to consider is that like, I believe that I like my, my philosophy or my mission statement is that I think that it, like, I'm excited to, um, uncover what any athlete's potential is. And, and, you know, there's, there's genetics and talent that totally determine like what that potential is. But my goal is to uncover that potential and then use that experience to like be a powerful influence on their like habits and their decision-making and their experience that will create this self-confidence in their competence that colors the rest of their life. You know, so if you look at athletes, we talk all the time about how athletes are so amazing in business. I think it's really important as a coach to set athletes up to have those skills and confidence and, and experiences that make them become those people. And so sometimes that has to be reverse engineered when you get an athlete who's in their 40s that didn't get that. Like long-term athlete development is, is a thing for young athletes. But sometimes when you have an older athlete, you need to re reverse engineer what that development was in order to like set them up later. Because like, I mean, in Ironman, we're getting a lot of people that are becoming athletes later. So, so that coaching philosophy where I look at this as something that becomes a beneficial thing for their whole life um, 
is a thing. And I'll, and I'll touch on why that, that matters um, later. Cause I think it does. Like, before we do, before we do that, can, can you give an example of how, how would that practically manifest in your coaching? Okay. So, so, okay. So when I look at coaching, it's a relationship where um, ultimately I give a bunch of advice and I always empower the athlete to make the final decision on that. If that athlete is a professional athlete, I'm going to be a lot more like stern and firm on like what I think is the right decision, but then they're still ultimately going to get the decision. And if it's an age group athlete, then I'm going to be a lot less. I'm going to be a lot more. This is totally your decision. This is your life. You need to like, here are the, like, here, here's how we're looking at this problem. You ultimately make the decision, but I'll give an example where, um, and I'll, I'll give the two ends of the spectrum. I had an age group athlete who was like a little bit older, but very fast, like a, a super fast athlete. And, um, and she ended up getting injured, totally unrelated to sport, like just a stupid life thing happened and she hurt herself. And, and that injury was like not really resolving itself. And yet she had um, qualified for the world championships and she was like, like hell bent on going to that world championships. And this athlete was good in, in like to the level that like if she were at her a hundred percent potential, I have no doubt in my mind, she'd be a world champion right now. But during this time, like this injury was persistent and it wasn't getting better. And so I think like for her, um, I just didn't feel good about continuing to try to pursue this world championship when potentially that injury was going to like affect her ability to enjoy sport for her whole life. But then it's her decision, right? For her, that race was worth it. But for me, it was not. And so because of what my bias is and that, like, I think that there is going to be another race and you need to be quite patient with the process of getting better. You can't overlook injury or technical deficiencies, which I'll talk about later. Um, we were really like not on the same page. And if I look back at that time, like, because we really weren't, um, I probably wasn't the right coach for her at that time. And then I was sort of thinking to myself, like, should I quit? Am I giving up on her while she's injured? Is that a bad thing? when really I, I don't think we should be doing this, you know, whereas uh, like the, if we, if we talk about, um, I'm not going to name any names, but like, I, like I've heard philosophy of some um, high performance coaches and, and certainly like, if you look at who you're coaching, this bias sort of like puts you in a, a place, right? So a really high performance coach works with um, like top level athletics athletes that are going to the Olympics and stuff. And like, in his mind, like in order to like even be there or stay there, you, you are constantly going to be like on that razor's edge, like dealing with injuries because you have to, right? Like that's just part of that level of sport. Whereas like, I feel like I could still coach that level, but I would always say like, I would rather have an athlete be like, have a tiny bit more potential that we haven't quite got to yet because we were really patient and we got them to the friggin' race, right? Versus like this constant cycle of athletes not even being able to get to the event that they were because you are like every last thing has to be done, 
And, and I think that certainly like even at the very top level, that philosophy is trickling down, but it, it, it really wasn't before. And so you'll get athletes that are um, like very compulsive and like very numbers oriented and, and very much like more is more. And I need to do this now. And, you know, really driven to the point of no patience. And those athletes would maybe like, maybe they need me, right? Because I'd be the yin to their yang. But like understanding that this is how I would approach it um, is important for athletes because like ultimately they need to get what they want. And, and I don't think athletes do enough like interviewing to understand like why their coach does what they do and, and how they make decisions. Right. And, and so I think this is an example where like an, an athlete who is like, it's now or never. And I, and I just fully didn't believe it was now or never, there was always going to be another. So that, mm-hmm. so that does, you know, that's the relationship part of coaching. Yeah, no, great example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, where did you want to continue uh, be, before okay, so I that, cut you off? Then, so coaching philosophy also, like, is separate from training philosophy, right? So now we, we've talked yeah. about like, what my overarching philosophy is. So, so training philosophy is like, why do I do the things I do? And so if we go back to the coaching philosophy, like very often I think you do have to re- like reverse engineer some of this like um, athletic development. And, and I think that um, like athletes need to have like a base of athleticism and technical proficiency to actually achieve this potential. And so, um, so like decisions that I made, like I, like I do a, a class called Monday mobility and it's not really just mobility. Um, and I think that Erin Carson now like owns that moniker because she's like, she's amazing. And she has like all these pro athletes that are doing her stuff and, and her mobi- Monday mobility is not really, well, it's not at all what I do. So mine's more like, like, like Monday athleticism class where um, I try to give athletes tools in that class that they can bring into their training because you, well, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're a coach. There's lots of triathletes that have a very limited range of athleticism and that limited range limits their potential. And so I believe that like, like having that base athleticism and then being technically proficient is important. And I believe that all three sports um, have like a technical aspect to them. Like I think everybody can agree that like swimming is something that if you don't have good technique, you're going to suck at it. Right. Like I think it's pretty clear. Um, but so for swimming, I, like, I really emphasize athletes being able to like have a good body position to start with. I really encourage them to come to me for training camps in order for me to teach this to them, because if they can't like, like float and roll in the water, it doesn't friggin' matter what you do for training. And it doesn't friggin' matter what you do with your arms. Like basically floating, rolling and breathing, set everything else up. And, and, um, so that, that's a big part of like my coaching is I get people to learn that because you're just wasting time if you, if you can't. And I, I'm pretty firm on that. So there are, but then there's some athletes that just don't want to do it. They want to go to masters and they want to sprint 25s and fifties all the time. And so they're going to, they want to go out the first 100 of an 1800 meter swim die and they'd be tired on the bike. That's just what they want, right? So then you just blame them to it because like I said, if it were a pro, I would be very, very, very firm. 
But if it's an age group athlete, this is your hobby, go ahead and do it. But if you ask me, I'm going to say, you need to learn how to swim. And then I also believe that um, a lot of master's programs and, and swimming programs are designed around athletes that swim up to like three minutes, right? Or four minutes. Some of them, like 800 meters was like this like insanely long thing for kids, right? And that's like, what is it, nine minutes? Well, in, in triathlon, by and large, your average 40-year-old has to swim for 35 minutes, right? So doing a bunch of 50s. Maybe if you're just doing them like relaxed and on like two seconds rest, it might make sense. But really, you need to swim 500 and 1000 meter repeats with good body position, building actual aerobic fitness in your arms, because your arms don't get fit from like running and they don't get fit from biking. So you actually have to create that fitness. So, um, so I believe in like, longer swims with good technique. So that's sort of how I try to get people fit for swimming. And even if they're not fast, I think that approach still makes them like quite resilient to the swim so that they can ride better. And then, so when we get to the bike, um, I, I think that people need to have a good bike position and they need to be able to um, have a range of cadences in order to tolerate courses that aren't pancake flat and they have to be really strong for the back end of the bike. And I think that you also need to train men different than women. I think that like from, from what I understand, like if you take the equivalent triathlete, um, male and female, that female very often um, has her threshold quite a bit like closer to her maximum than the males. And so for her, like pulling the ceiling up is really important consistently. Um, and for him, like basically managing some percentage of that. And I think that's reflected in why there's like the threshold approach really works well for two particular Norwegian super talents, but that approach would pretty much never work. I don't think for a girl, I, I just don't think that that um, is going to maximize. I could be wrong, but in, in my mind that in my philosophy, that wouldn't be the best approach. I think for some people, um, especially like newer athletes, uh, just creating that aerobic base has to be there first. And so if you haven't been training for a long time, just doing anything more is going to make you better. You don't even need a coach really. So for beginners, just doing anything more is going to, you're, you're going to have this wonderful, phase of just improving all the time, no matter what you do. So um, sorry to all those coaches that think they're doing amazing with beginners, but just getting them to show up is like winning. Um, and then, uh, and then so for, and then for running, I also, I like, I have a really um, technical bias in running. I think that you set your you, like joint angles dictate function. So you need to set up your joints properly to tolerate the loading of running. So I do think that there's a base, like there's a, what's called, I think like, I, I'm going to use a lot of terminology that is a reflection of how much time I've spent in Altus, like doing a mentorship with, with those guys, but there's a bandwidth in, in which like you are probably going to be fine, but outside that bandwidth, it's going to be a problem. And, um, and so most of the time, if I see something that is a problem, generally that means that athlete is not consistent with their running, is constantly getting injured. In those two instances, you have to actually change what they're doing because, you know, it's, it's, it's probably 
they're outside the bandwidth technically and or like they're like doing too much for their body and you have to like you know change the programming um so with with running i think it's it's running well within this bandwidth to become really efficient and then each runner is going to be different because they set up their races um very different Mm. but then and but then above all of this I think that everybody over 30 needs to be lifting weights. And particularly, I think women need to lift weights because of what I described before, where the, the ceiling has to come up and weightlifting is, is a big part of that. Yeah. Well, I have several follow-ups on that. Um, first, uh, let, let's do the, uh, the running and the Altis. Can you explain for the listeners who are not familiar, what, what is Altis? Oh, okay. So Altis... Um, Oh man, they're going to just, I'm going to butcher like what they are. So do what they are to me. Okay. Um, so during the pandemic or just like actually when a pandemic pandemic was happening, I went and did this assistant coach program down in Phoenix with Altus. And they're a group that coaches primarily like um, sprints and hurdles. Um, uh, and the two coaches that I interacted with the most there were Dan Paff and Stu McMillan. And Stu McMillan is a Canadian. Oh, actually Kevin Tyler was there, but they're all like, you know, a hundred meter runner type coaches. And so I didn't know really what to expect from going down there. But I, but for me, I just wanted to be exposed to the best coaches in the world. I want to see what are they doing in their programs? Um, how can I be better? Like what is important to them? And I just wanted to like soak up whatever the hell they were going to tell me. And so I went and hung out with them and they had the Chinese national team before the Tokyo Olympics training down there. There was like, um, a whole bunch of other like sort of um, 400 meter runners and um, some sprinters. And I just looked at what their daily training environment looked like. Um, I looked at what they were experimenting in with, with in terms of monitoring um, and just some of their philosophy around biomechanics and programming. And, and I think that there's no doubt that you can extrapolate and regress like what the biomechanic bandwidth is for a sprinter creating that amount of speed and acceleration down to like an Ironman run, because no matter what, like the human body like exists within a bandwidth and um, there's just like fundamental physics that's involved in it. And, and I think understanding that has been really important to me in terms of deciding what to intervene with, with certain athletes, um, and what to, what to leave alone. Um, and, and just understanding like why workouts in training work and, and why you do certain workouts, because ultimately it's not the workout. It's like, what do I need to accomplish? And then like, how am I going to do that? So it's not like I, I need to like, like squirrel away a bunch of like secret workouts because that's not it. Like, it's like, here's the athlete, here's their problem or their requirement. And, you know, you can just be really thoughtful about how to approach that problem and over what timeline. So um, that Altus has been really great in terms of being exposed to like high performance coaches. And then I proceeded to do three mentorships with Dan Paff and Dan Paff is like some like, demi like uber god of um not some he is like one of the most successful olympic coaches of all time and um he is absolutely wonderful in terms of how great 
he is for like sharing his network. So just connecting me to other people if I want to ask them questions um, for, you know, sort of looking at my overall coaching everything um, and like sending me in directions and ways to improve. Um, so mentorship from like a really experienced and successful coach is, is huge for, for um, coaches. And I think having a coach that successful also um, lends so much time and experience to a female coach. Cause very often we get like quite the opposite <laughs> approach to that. So he's been um, really great in terms of, like helping me to continue to get better. And so um, I'm actually in my, like, I don't know what it is. It's like the, the, the super mentorship now. So this is like the, I, sh- I should know what I'm doing. <laughs> so here we go where I have to like do a lot of um, reflection and um, discussion with other coaches that are also at this level of mentorship. And, and so I'm in an, a third one now where, there's a lot of interaction with other sport coaches to to talk about why we do things. And, and I think it's important for triathlon coaches to learn from other sports because, you know, there's there, like everybody has ways of doing things that you can learn from. And it's been invaluable for me to talk to like a variety of other sports. Mm. So. So in practical terms with the running and biomechanics in particular, what would you say uh, or if you can give one or two examples of what has changed in your training approach, you could even take yourself as an example. Like, is there something that you have changed in how you approach the run training component with uh, what you have learned there? Yeah, I think, I think, well, so yeah, like, why don't we just, because it's, it always depends on the athlete, right? So if I look at me, um, it, it, like the, the ankle is, you know, definitely a, a bottleneck. If you don't have a functional ankle, um, your, your, your feet, your ankle and your calves, um, are basically the springs on which you bounce on the ground. So if your ankle doesn't work, it, it's very difficult to run. It took me three years to, to run again after I shattered my ankle in 2016. And, and so even like, coming back from that, how I would rehab that fracture, um, based on what I know now has changed. So that just in terms of like understanding, um, how to use BFR, understanding the weight room, um, and then understanding how, um, you know, how you approach the ground with your foot, um, you know, what, like the range of motion and strength at your, like, hip flexors and pelvis and how that it is different when you're on your bike versus when you're running. Um, I think someone like me who's biased to a cycling background, like our rectus femoris, which is a big muscle on the front of your quads, it wants to be short in order to produce vertical force because you're sitting, right? So it's like if you're sitting in a chair and you're pushing down, that's pretty much cycling, right? So then if you take that rectus femoris and it wants to push into the ground when you're standing up, just with your butt kind of sticking out a bit, because that's its happy place. Um, that's a good way to be overstriding um, and not have any hip extension when you're running. So finding that balance where you you can actually cycle, because once you start to try and lengthen that when you're running a lot, then all of a sudden you become a little bit less efficient when you're or powerful when you're riding on your bike and and like like right. Um, riding that line between those two 
um, you know, asks of that muscle, like that just, I'm just talking about one specific thing. Um, it explains a lot when you look at the different postures, uh, when people are, are running. And so, uh, understanding that and, and also, um, understanding how to set up and build a really strong spring, uh, which is your foot, ankle, calf, like, you really need um, proper pretension of of that spring before you land. Um, and I think a lot of, well, I would say like, okay, I'm biased. I coach a lot of athletes that are over 35 and they are um, hopelessly uh, like biased by this whole barefoot thing that created this incorrect um, notion that you need to land on your midfoot, right? And so there's like an epidemic of athletes that point their toes at the ground to try and get their midfoot to land there. Um, and that everything about that is wrong. So, so, um, and so trying to like educate people on why that's wrong. Um, I, I think an understanding that if you change that, it is better because I know if you change that, it is better. Um, I think I, I, I was one of those people, right? Like, cause you just see, and you think that like, that's what good runners do, but that's actually not what they're doing. So, um, does that, did that, did that answer the question? Well, yes, yes, yes. I just asked for, for some examples and it gave me several. <laughs> so, so that's very good. <laughs> and, uh, there were some other follow ups that I had. So yeah, the next one was, uh, regarding the different training for, uh, men and women. And I think you gave, uh, and on the bike in particular, uh, you gave a good example with how the women are typically tend to be closer to their maximum, which, so you need to raise their ceiling. I think that's a, a really, I agree with that. I think it's a really important part of it. But I think there are other parts of it as well. Like, for example, if you have a, I mean, the extreme example would be a 400 watt FTP for like a top, top uh, cyclist versus, let's say, a, a 200 watt FTP, which is not a bad FTP for uh, for a regular, it's a good FTP for, for a regular uh, female triathlete. Then, uh, yeah, that's obviously energetically it's a it's a massive difference if you're uh, the the way you're training if you're going to spend uh if you're if you're going to spend some time at threshold or what what your easy intensity should be or or what your high intensity should be and and so on so so that's another aspect and i think also just the fact that um men tend to have higher um a bit higher anaerobic capacity as well uh, a higher bigger w prime so so they can go a bit deeper but it can also be a bit costlier so that's Mm -hmm. a reason maybe to to not yeah to be a bit, a bit more careful with that than than with women who can be more aerobic when they do the 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 anaerobic training or the, the well, not anaerobic training but the training that is done at high intensities let's say so so i think sure. basically basically i agree i agree with your observations and i think there are many reasons for for why why it might be the case but then at the end of the day it's individual right like there are women with high w primes and and big muscle mass and and then they might benefit more from the kind of threshold training approach for sure and and if we want to pivot like away from triathlon for a second and i'll just discuss like a road cyclist that i was coaching um i i got a cyclist and she was relatively new um but she came from a crossfit background right and so she had been Mm -hmm. like a super avid crossfitter so 
you can imagine what the anaerobic capacity of a CrossFitter is that comes into yeah. cycling. And she was, she was like pretty convinced that she was a good, um, that she was a good sprinter, right? Cause the, all the evidence from her like racing and, and whatever from that time was indicating that she was pretty good at it. Um, and that she liked it. And then, so she had another coach that was going through her training peaks and was like, Oh, well for a sprinter, your sprints are actually kind of low. So she, we should really work on your sprinting. Right. And, and so if we, if we look at that, okay, we have someone who's a CrossFitter. So she's done quite a bit of work in, in that realm. And she actually has evidence of capability, like competence from her racing, but then training peaks is just giving you a number that doesn't look that high. So it's the numbers are not correlating with what reality is. And then I went through it and, and he had been like hammering the shit out of her, like in terms of sprinting. So I have a few thoughts on this, like number one, and I don't know, somebody like some of these really highfalutin cycling coaches that are really experienced at the pro tour level potentially will disagree with me. And I'm totally cool with that. And I, I want them to tell me, but I think you either are, or you aren't a sprinter. It just is there. Like you are genetically born with that type of capacity and you're good or you're not. I, I don't think that's trainable. I think that's just there. And so, um, and I think it, it shows itself pretty early. So people know when they're pretty good at it. Uh, number one. And then number two, with this athlete, she had done a lot of the training that would be appropriate for that kind of, um, that kind of capacity already with like what she was doing in the gym. And that coach was looking at her training peaks, but then he didn't like consider the fact she didn't have a power meter on her bike. So like all these numbers and training peaks from power were from sprinting on a, like a trainer. Like, I don't know. I can you sprint on your trainer. Like, no, no, it's useless. Like, I don't know, unless you have all the fancy, like DC rainmaker, like make your bike rock everywhere. I still don't think it's going to be the same as riding outside. Um, so I, I just think that you can't really train that indoors as well. Um, and then number three, even if you were to like coach a sprinter um, and somebody who's not that experienced like this athlete, she's got to get to the sprint, right? So you got to look at like, what is the race that she's targeting and did, how is she going to get to the end of the race where the sprint is happening, right? So you have this person, they don't sprint off the line very often. I mean, I tried that and I was very successful with it in some crits where I basically just started the race and like blasted off and lapped the field doesn't really happen very often anymore. Like people are onto that strategy. Um, so you actually have to have aerobic capacity to get there. So then it, it just all comes down to like building this full athlete, not hammering away at her ability to sprint, which becomes like a technical ask, like put her in situations with a bunch of sketchy people to like make her be able to survive the sketchiness and sprint. So, yeah. So I, I think here's a female athlete who already has all that, like her, like, like neuromuscular, whatever her max power is well above what her threshold is because she's inexperienced. So it's still, and it depends because of athletes come like athletes come into cycling and triathlon from a whole bunch of stuff. And, and it, they, they can, they can always challenge your, your, preconceived notions by just being unique and that's and that's coaching right is just figuring out like who 
who is this person? Who is this like amazing freak that I'm dealing with right now? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a great example, and I, I agree with 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 all of that for sure. I mean, the the only thing I, I think with the sprinting, I, I I agree that you're basically you're you're kind of born with it. Of course, there are things you can do. Like I, I would say that gym work and and maybe some biomechanics work. Like, but it, depending on the discipline, like if you're talking running, yeah, biomechanics, and if and if you're talking running or cycling, then gym work can help and. And swimming, maybe also, uh, well, biomechanics and and gym work can both help. But but I think like just hammering sprints in the discipline itself is not going to do much for you. And that's actually something that I tested today in the pool. Uh, I tried to do a couple of all out twenty five meter sprints, and they were the same time as I always do when I sprint all out twenty five <laughs> meters. Like it doesn't change. Even I've been visiting my family, and I haven't been swimming much for the last few weeks, so I'm I'm very unfit, which uh, swimming wise, which showed when I did my kind of endurance set. But the twenty fives were the same as always, and and that also kind of goes back to an earlier point you said about the fitness, uh, swimming wise, the specific fitness, and do which I totally agree with as well. The doing that endurance work that that you need specifically for the swim because you're swimming with different muscles uh, than you do upper body wise and and quite often like those muscles are more fast twitch dominant than uh, than slow twitch so they they need uh, generally a bit more endurance work and and you lose that aerobic fitness a lot quicker so um the master swimming thing that you mentioned i think they are I, they are made for the three minute events as you say or even just for entertainment which is fine like it's better to yeah. swim than than not swim but but it's it's not the optimal necessarily if you're trying to basically go as fast as you can for 1900 or 3800 meters yeah and and not all masters programs are the same like there's there's one no. um I'll, I'll shout like in victoria the pinnacle um coaching group does a, a friday swim that's in the pool on Fridays and then it becomes an open water swim on Fridays, like when it's not freezing out. And that swim is very triathlon specific. Like it's an excellent um, workout for triathletes. Right. And it's just, I I just don't think that you're going to get a lot of like proper aerobic development doing a bunch of I am one hundreds, number one. Um, And then speaking to your, your comment about sprinting and your times always being the same. The, the issue with swimming and, and running versus cycling is that the, the technical bandwidth um, like and margin of error is the largest in swimming. So like there's a huge amount of inefficiency that can happen when you're swimming. And then depending on how fast you want to sprint running, um, like if you want to run a, a 9.7, um, your technical bandwidth is, is like, it seems like, to altus they they discuss it like having a bandwidth that's kind of wide and there are these like differences but really there aren't like from like if you're if you're not a hundred meter coach and you look at these sprinters they look away like they there is a it's it's a bandwidth and relative to like you know just a a recreational runner it's narrow right and so Mm -hmm. so in terms of learning how to run fast when you're running um, these sprint mechanics are a useful um, tool to understand how you create speed running uh, because most people don't understand running and they don't know what they're doing. And they think they do because they can, they can move faster than walking, but that like it's technical. And so that technique a hundred percent limits your max speed. 
So um, because you're just leaking power in all different directions. And, and it really like, just like you're describing, it shows up a lot in swimming and it does as well in running. Whereas cycling, you're kind of like you're in, you're encased in a, a, like a limited bandwidth of movement to start with. So, so yeah, your knees like, like dropping in and out and your hips dropping back and forth and your upper body rocking. These are things that you can see and feel where you're like leaking power a little bit easier to correct than, you know, like, like over swinging your shin when you're running or basically like just like wiggling down the pool, which is what I most often see. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, to, and just to clarify my, my point with that was more so that the, there is, there's only so much you can do in terms of improving your sprint and your max speed unless you do some really significant changes let's mm -hmm. say technique wise for example so just hammering the sprints again like for me the example was that i haven't been swimming much i'm very unfit generally but i can still do the same 25 meter speeds and the same would be true if i took six months off from the bike and did no biking i'm pretty sure i could smash out the same 10 second or 20 second sprint as i could when i'm very well trained on the bike if not slightly more just from being rested oh, okay, uh, so yeah. absolutely so, yes you're right yeah. yes yes yeah so 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 that was more the point that i that i was getting at there yeah you were um, agreeing with me with your like born with your sprints <laughs> yeah yes exactly yeah totally yeah um one other question that uh, I'm just looking through the list because we discussed a lot of my things here already. Um, well, I guess one thing we can do, we can maybe we can give an example training week for a very typical 35 plus age grouper training for Ironman. And we're recording this in, in January. So, so it might be like a base training week. What, what might somebody do this time of year, but they have an Ironman coming up in, in the summer in June or something. Yeah, so, um, I like so I don't have like I'll I'll have some I'll give you some ideas of some workouts that I am that I like a lot for a lot of different people, but everybody's program really is different because, um, because in my group everybody really does approach their race differently. So so like one guy I have, he just, he just took off and he's done nothing for four weeks. He's been in Singapore laying by the pool. Like, and, and for him, he's, he's actually like a case study for me on an athlete that has like, like his trajectory and of improvement has exceeded everybody else. And he has the most days off, but that for him works. He has a young family. He invests in his family when he's off and when he's off, he's really off. So, and he's like a tall, um, basketball player guy. I think he has a lot of muscle to recover and he like just trains better when he's fresher. So, so his program is pretty, like, there's not a lot of athletes that would tolerate that. From me. <laughs> like just basically doing nothing for a long time, but he has proven over and over that that's the best for him. So for some, they're just like, basically this is going to be his first week back. Weird. Mm -hmm. um, for others, um, like w this time of year would be, a lot of really technical swimming. So we like probably not even for a few more weeks, would we really start to focus on um, 
uh, like the actual fitness space and, and like starting to do some of the work that I was describing where you're doing like longer intervals at like more of a tempo type pace, like more like 80% Ironman pace sort of swimming where they're just getting used to like setting a rhythm for, for just to build, you know, just like with riding, like building your aerobic base. Um, so for, I'd say for the some of the group is like good, just going straight into um, fitness because they just don't want to do it. And again, like that's, that's like what they want to do for the rest. They're, they're doing a lot of um, body position strength work where, you know, they're kicking at 45 degrees. They're practicing breathing, holding their body at 45 degrees, which is essentially like isometric, isometric strength work for them. Um, And they're working on sort of lat mobility so that they can be more efficient and have like a better um, sort of engagement in that position. So they're doing a lot of that kind of work right now. So like tons of kicking and none of their kicking is meant to like create a decent kick. Like I don't want any of them to kick ever, but just holding yourself on your side um, is a strength exercise. So that's like primarily what most people are doing swimming. And then um, whether they're a run, like they want to build up, sort of running or whether they're working on their cycling. Um, I really like circuits uh, this time of year where they're because everybody I coach is um, pressed for time. They, I don't have unlimited time with anyone. I want them to do mo- my mobility class, which I should rename. I'm going to have to call it something else now that Aaron owns that. So let's, let's call it like Mel's rad athleticism class. So they, I want them to do that. And I live stream it on, on Mondays to like, we have some subscribers. So if anybody wants to come try it, like just go to my website, give it a go. Um, so they'll do that, which is like a half a strength session. It's about that kind of sort of training load. And then they'll do a full on uh, strength session. Uh, and that is related to their like technical proficiency with strength. Like some of them, are, they can't really, we're just working on them being able to do a proper squat or do a hinge or whatever. And so they just need body weight. And I have this, I stole this awesome, um, strength, uh, program called one by twenties, the yes, I think it's, yes, it's one by twenties. You Google that one by twenties. Um, it's like that base athleticism strength work that is mostly body weight, super good to set up your ligaments, you know, cause it's your ligaments and tendons that can't tolerate the high resistance training yet. So there's no point in going heavy until your body's ready. And, and I think that's a really good um, primer for, for getting ready to do strength. And the ones who have been doing a little bit longer are lifting heavy Um, And then for their third strength workout, it's either run plus strength or bike plus strength. So they'll do some kind of circuit. And, um, and I actually posted like a, a, like a beginner version of it on um, like as my workout of the week on like for the fast talk Instagram. So if you want to try something like that, it's on there. Um, But so they're doing something like that in order to get three strength sessions to fit in with their training week, but also not lose that day of like specific um, sport specific, um, transfer and, um, the circuits are really great for, um, potentiation, you know, where you like use a weight workout to recruit a bunch of fibers and then you go directly on the bike and then you use those fibers. And I just find that that, that work is great in this like general preparation, no matter if you are going from like, and I'll talk about what the philosophy is for like building to the season, no matter if you're going from 
this is your like higher intensity time, like kind of moving like a distance above what your actual race is and then funneling towards specific where you, you like intervals get longer and maybe a little bit slower. Or if you're like a, a cyclist and now your intervals are a bit longer and, you know, maybe a lot more polarized to get like a little bit more VO2, like as you get towards your race season. So that circuit type thing works for everyone no matter what. So I'll kind of alternate some weeks. They'll be doing like the run one. Some they'll be doing the strength one. Um, some are doing a lot of uh, like, right. We don't have a lot of snow here. So anyway, lots of the locals are riding their mountain bikes a bunch or their cross country skiing. Um, I think that there's a lot of benefit to uh, athletes that race these linear sports that we're in to do lateral movements in order to create a better, uh, more robust range of motion and, and like competence in terms of strength. So uh, I really encourage athletes to do other stuff to prepare for the season, whether it's cross country skiing, some of them play tennis, some play squash, um, like whatever they want to do. Like it's, it, it all fits in around this time of year. And so that, that's what I mean. Like the circuits, the strength training, um, and the technical focus on this stuff, um, that's ubiquitous. Um, but what everyone wants to do is it changes. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, what about the in terms of running? Was there anything other than the, the strength circuit, the run strength circuit? Are there any 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 workouts, or is it more base uh, base work, and then the quality comes from the the actual strength and conditioning work that you're doing? So, so that's where the Mel's Rad Athleticism class, or whatever the heck I'm going to call it. That's where that comes in. So like there are some introductions to some of the like drills and competencies in that class. Um, and then so, like, and then the camps I'm doing, like I have a camp coming up this weekend in Victoria where we are working on some of the awareness um, and the, the, the work that we do to modify um, over time, like how they're running like that, that that's this time of year. Um And I, I think that you always have to be training at a variety of paces and speeds and whatever, because um, I, I think that you like it's it, you, you need to recruit a bunch of stuff all the time. So like, even if uh, right now, like in general, athletes are doing probably a little bit of tempo, maybe not a full hit of it, but they're getting some of it in. Um, they're doing strides very frequently. And then the, um, the circuits are probably their hills where it, it, it would be like a hill at moderate to hard along with the strength. So they're kind of hitting on everything. It's not just easy running, but the, those with more time, you know, if they, if they have more time to put into running, then that extra time is, is certainly easy. Um, but their long runs right now would not be long, hard Ironman type runs, they'd be like long, hilly trails. Hmm. And that, I mean, for athletes that are self-coached that are listening to this, um, there, you can do so much by just changing the surface that you run on. Like I, I, I'm always amazed at, at how athletes just from a, a like a con convenience perspective, will just run out the door on the pavement and run right up, whatever there. And they don't have like, they kind of avoid the hills because they want to have, you know, a reasonable pace or whatever. And, you know, for those type of athletes going and running in the trails 
where your pace is irrelevant. Like I went and ran with a like a really strong runner locally. Both of us are pretty fit right now. It took us like an hour and a half to run like, I don't know what it was, 13 kilometers, <laughs> you know, because it was like so hilly and technical and whatever. That kind of strength running, it just is so important this time of year. Um, and so that would be the kind of running. I'm, I'm just begging athletes to not worry about what their Strava pace is and go and run like hard stuff that is fun and they can take their mind off it and they can run at a conversational pace where they're getting that strength in by like the challenge of the terrain versus like having to like neurologically motivate themselves to run hard like that. I, unless you're racing really soon, that is not um, required right now. Like, like you want your overall body strength and like, you know, it's like a, it's, it's a quiver of tools. You want to have like the widest base of competency as you can. So now is the time to maybe move a little further away from what you specifically want to do and create some of the things that you might not be as good at. And for some athletes, they're, they're, they're afraid to um, run off road. And for them, I say, you should go hiking, right? You should go hike. If you want to make it harder, wear a weight vest. I do it all the time with my dog. I just like go and like wear a weight vest and hike up a hill with him. And that strengthens your feet, your ankles, um, your hips, your back, all that kind of stuff. And like, if you're worried that you're going to sprain your ankle because you're a toe pointer, (laughs) that's a note on this side, um, the hiking will be hugely beneficial. So, so even hiking is, is part of um, some athletes and my cyclists, they are, they are hiking right now with or without a a weight vest because they need to do that as well. Because, um, even if they're lifting weights, I think from a, a bone density perspective, having that variety and training this time of year is, is really great. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really interesting point with the with the cyclists. Uh, for triathletes, I uh, I also completely agree. Like trail running, I'm a massive fan personally, and as a coach and and hiking as well, same same thing there. Really, I think with the trail running, like it ticks some of the boxes that you mentioned earlier with more non-linear movements like lateral movements and so on and, and using different muscles and being able to stabilize and and uh, contract doing different contractions of different muscle groups quickly uh, in response to changes in terrain and uh, and yeah it just keeps things fun and and uh, yeah. and light-hearted so the only thing you have to do is kind of be be a bit aware of what your skill level is because it's quite easy to to just fall and <laughs> and hurt yourself if you if you try to go a little bit too too fast on a on a really technical trail. So For sure. yeah, that's the yeah. that's the one caveat. Um, and and biking wise, if you uh, go into some some more detail like you did with the running, uh, can yeah can can you give some some examples of the the workouts that might be done? Yeah, d- before we come off the running, that that since we're talking about trail running. Um, this like ankle and foot strength, um, philosophy that I have, like, if you can't run on trails, it says to me that your ankle and foot strength is inadequate. Um, and a lot of people just sort of, um, put orthotics in their shoes for the rest of their life and just overlook the fact that their feet and ankles aren't strong. And I would say that's a a real problem. I think that orthotics are the only, um, cast that we as humans will accept forever. Like if, if somebody put a, like a, a brace on your wrist and said, okay, you're going to wear that for the rest of your life. Cause your wrist isn't working. Nobody would accept that, but that's exactly what an orthotic is. And so orthotics are good for like acute intervention and potentially for athletes that really have a major leg length 
morphological discrepancy, I think for them, then maybe I like, I can't speak to that because there's always people that are going to fall outside of this bandwidth that requires some intervention, but by and large orthotics are um, a way to not fix a problem. And so if you can't run trails very often, it's because you have a problem and this, I like all times of year, but certainly this time of year, like incorporating a lot of foot strength stuff into the programming. Um, new athletes often come to me this time of year. And this is like the one thing that I'm like, okay, we're going to start. You need to be able to pick up your big toe, you know, and you can't, and that's a problem. You know, these awareness things, um, that's part of the, um, the running stuff. So, so while we're on the trails idea, like, like for me, um, I can't run downhill and trails still as well as I, I did when I was an ex-terra athlete and I wasn't good at running hills, went downhills when I was an ex-terra athlete because I didn't do enough of this. And so, um, I think that it's more, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a sign that there's a problem versus something to avoid. Um, so with cycling, um, yeah. And so this is where with, with cycling, depending on what your objective is in the summer, how you organize your winter is different because I believe that you, you funnel towards specificity. And I, I think we talked a little bit about, did I talk about this in our Xterra? I'm not sure, but we talked, we um, talked a bit about, um, the polarization of training. I, I remember we talked about yeah and some some really high intensity workouts really short hard efforts uh as opposed to grinding away at sweet spot all year long i think yeah. I, I think that was yeah. part of our discussion. I, I think that i think th- like i still <laughs> believe in that and um I, I think there's a time for doing that and and but then as you you know like so i think i think when i when i think of ironman and ironman 70.3 depending on how fast the athlete, those can be completely different things, right? So, mm-hmm. so for an athlete, that's not that fast. And, um, and, a, and a 70.3 takes them like six to seven hours. Their training is probably going to be like a little bit closer to their Ironman training. Cause all of it is like about, um, you know, like, like a long fuel based survival. Um, but for faster athletes, um, you know, the, the training for a 70.3 can look a lot more like an Olympic distance race. So depending on how fast they are, their approach can be quite a bit different. And and when you're training for an Olympic distance race versus an Ironman, those are not the same thing, right? They are not like, not at all. Like Ironman is all about rehearsal and training to um, understand what pace you can hold and like fuel utilization and implementation. Um, Whereas like, um, there, I think having like a really strong over under range for faster athletes at the 70.3 distance is important because they can like start to optimize how fast they can go in certain sections. And they're going to want to have that range above and below. Um, and you can run pretty fast for a half. Like you can train for a half marathon the same way you run, you run a 10 K when you're fast. So, so yeah, so that, that, that becomes like, a little bit different, but if it's, if it's a slower athlete that's training for, um, 70.3 or an athlete that's training for Ironman. Yeah. Our funnel is like really general right now, really working on economy and mechanics and then trying to, you know, again, figure out what we need to work most on males to females are different. Like females, I'm probably working on, you know, 
a little bit more maximum strength or, but if they're like a beginner, then it could just be the whole season is based on durability and being able to hold arrow position in your time trial position for like whatever it's going to be like six hours, right? Like, so, so it could be a whole season for somebody who's new to Ironman where they're, or not even new where they're trying to um, just train fatigue resistance all year. Um, so, uh, but whereas like for somebody who's racing a shorter race, who's faster then pot- potentially we're working on that, like um, that fatigue resistance early, but they're tr- we're trying to like, dial up a little bit of speed closer to. So I I think more than anything, you need to um, increase the specificity and extend this, the pace you want to be able to hold um, closer to the race. So you just need to put stuff in place to create that extension later. Like you do shorter bouts of it now, maybe shorter, faster, and then make it longer. Or maybe it's like, for this fatigue resistance, maybe it's, it's longer duration now in order to speed it up later. Right. So yeah. 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 That makes sense. Uh, and what else was I going to ask about the cycling? Oh yeah. So you mentioned a bit before being in a good position. Is that something you get involved with? Because that's something that is quite common. You, you get an athlete that has done a bike fit and, and they, you get some pictures and you see that, okay, that's a bike fit, but, but you're basically like a big windbreak. So, so it's not going to be the fastest and, and that could be, it could well be the best bike fit that is possible for the athlete at the moment with the mobility constraints that they have. But considering that you talked about how that is something that you, you do get, you do focus on the mobility aspects of things. And, uh, is, is that something that you also think about the, the actual getting involved with the bike fit of the athlete? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my long list of growth as a coach, I really do think that I need to um, be properly certified to do bike fits myself because I just would like to be able to do that myself. Um, I don't have that training. I think I can see what's good and what's bad, but I don't, I don't have the proper education and experience to, um, to do that for athletes right now. And I, I like to try and stay in, I, I like to describe myself as the like a really great generalist. I really I know a lot about a narrow range of stuff. Like I know a lot about you know common injuries for running, cycling, swimming, like good strength pr- approaches for these kind of sports. But like if somebody was a badminton player and they had some strange injury, I would not understand the mechanism of that or anything about it. So then they need to go to a physio, or if they have something that's I can't identify they need to like go to a physio and, and ultimately I, they can go to a physio, like physio or a, 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 a specific strength coach like Aaron or, or like the, the great people that are here. Um, and they know a lot more than I do. Um, but at, I know something about a lot of things. And so bike fit is one of those things I can, I can kind of see it. I can see what looks like it's outside the bandwidth do I have the proper set of tools to like do that intervention? No. Right. And so um, that is something that I'd I'd like to be able to do. Um, And I think that that is something that um, people like, so what I do in the rad athleticism or Monday class or whatever we're going to call it um, is 
do the things that are required to access that ideal position that they're going to be able to get in later. So do the work that is needed to start to optimize their position. Um, and then just encourage athletes to find somebody good to help them find what that position is and know that it's going to evolve over time. Um, I, I think that that's one of the biggest things with, uh, since 2019, like I noticed in 2019, everyone got way faster. And it's, it's because in 2019, that was the first year that I really saw the pro field starting to like dial in. Everybody was getting like way better aerodynamically. So it didn't matter that you had lots of power because if you weren't aerodynamic, you were still slower. And so, um, I think that that's now trickling into the, the age group field as well. So yeah. I'm not competent enough to do that, but I am aware enough to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's it's what you already said that depending on what the athlete's level is and their goal is, then it might be a, okay, you really have to work on this or it's, well, you're in position. If you can hold the position for the duration of the Ironman, it's fine. Yeah. So, so it all comes down to that. Um, the yeah, the personal ambitions of the athlete and and what they're willing to do for um, gaining some extra time. Um, and another question that I wanted to ask was on the topic of pacing. So, how do you how how do you how do you know or how how do you suggest an athlete pace their Ironman if they ask you, hey, so what 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 should I do on the swim bike and run pacing wise? Yeah, like I think I think a lot of like solid rehearsal and training helps you to be able to feel that pace because like a lot of the measurement that we try to to use um, can like it has to be a range, right? And especially as um, you know, the, the race unfolds, like stuff's going to happen. And, and so just understanding how things are supposed to feel. And then if they feel this way, then this is going to happen. This, this is how you're going to run or whatever. So I think preparing athletes for, um, what the race is going to feel like is, is first and foremost, I think it has to be subjective and, and proper rehearsal. Uh, like, and because again, I work with like time crunched athletes, largely remotely, um, I think that, uh, you know, you, 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 if you put the, the you're, you're a victim of ha the quality of the data you're going to get. <laughs> so I think even asking athletes to do, um, like an FTP test, let's just pull something out. We ask them to do an FTP test. Um, most of the time they have to do that on the trainer. Um, in my experience, when um, we had to do testing as, as part of the national team, some people were freaking awesome at tests and some people were terrible at tests. And I'm going to give it like a distinct example <laughs> where like Alice and Cider, I don't know how many mountain bike world championships she won, like, I don't know, five, maybe uh, she won like a whole bunch of world championships. And, um, and she also went to the like Olympics on the road. Like she's just like an astonishing accomplished mountain bike racer i'm pretty sure i could test better than her <laughs> right so we would do this testing i was like this like fresh faced little 22 year old and i'd like rock in with like the the testing i'd be like ah and like i'd beat her in tests or something like that got me on the national team to get my ass kicked by her right <laughs> so so if you extrapolate that to like um, age group athlete asked to do a test on the trainer after work, what were the kids in dinner, and you know, all this stuff, like trying to actually get accurate data from these athletes to then extrapolate to what's going to happen, 
in a, in a nine hour race. Um, I don't know how valuable that's going to be, right? Like sometimes the, and, and I, and, and then things like, um, doing things like the inside test and stuff like that. Um, you can manipulate what though, what that VLA max value is by like just having athletes do a bunch of fasted training for like three weeks. And then all of a sudden that number is like completely different. Um, and you know, like, like asking athletes to hit numbers in training, it's just, I don't know. I, I feel like as a coach, especially for, again, my bias to this group that I'm coaching, understanding how things feel is, is like a lost art in Zwift and training peaks built workouts. I, I just think that when, when push comes to shove, like you have to understand how your body is feeling while you're making decisions like in these long races. And I, I think I, I wish I could ask athletes to do that more. So, so I think that, um, I, tr- I try my best to mix up the training so that sometimes I'll give them, you know, a range for an interval in training peaks. This is how this is supposed to feel. And then give them an opportunity to try and do something like it outside and just see how it feels outside. Because I think that athletes that understand their body and are listening to it are the ones that are going to pace better, not the ones that are the most digital about the numbers. Because, you know, as we know, you know, your FTP is going to be different at the first hour of a four hour ride versus at the fourth hour. And so understanding that, um, like while you're carrying training load or additional stress, your FTP in a workout might be invalid when you start because you're carrying too much load for it. So, um, so yeah, I think like pacing becomes practice. Yeah. And and how different it is depends on how well trained you are. So, So, which so it's it's completely impossible to uh to say like as a percentage of any given test whatever whatever it might be so mm-hmm. i'm 100 with you i think that this is where for ironman racing in particular there is an advantage for age groupers compared to pros in that it's actually slightly more feasible to really really closely simulate the like each discipline of the of the race without it being like overwhelmingly hard mentally mm-hmm. because if you're an age group athlete most age group athletes maybe the very fastest ones i would be more careful with but for for most you can go out and do a five hour ride and you can have four and a half hours of that be at let's say a high aerobic pace which is your ironman race pace and depending on how you phrase it the athlete might not even know that it's race pace because if you say race pace it might be it might seem harder for some reason <laughs> because <laughs> The, the word right. race is in there, but but the Ironman is such a long event for most that that it actually if if it's your Ironman race pace and you're a ten hour Ironman athlete or a fourteen hour Ironman athlete, then then you can do four hours of of that, which is part of the bike uh, of your five hour or six hour bike, and and then that's not it's not it's of course a, a long day out, but and, and you're going to be tired, but but it's not going to be this massive massive thing that you're going to necessarily need to worry about uh all week be, before you get to the weekend and get to do that thing so, right. so you can simulate it quite closely for age groupers i think 
Yeah. And I think, I think for the faster athletes and, and like, particularly for me as a pro, um, there's like, you, you, like you get used to understanding what that line is. Okay. This is where this is, you know, the limit here. Um, and I think the, the, the best advice I can give for athletes is that, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to run very well if you, um, overdo the first half. Like, I think just like there, the, the rules are that you're going to run faster if you like, if that Delta, like everybody fades a little bit, but if you can keep that Delta, like within about 10 or 15 Watts between like, you know, their first half and the second half, um, you're going to probably run faster. And so, Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem with that as a pro is that like, as these races get, um, you know, you get to the, the championship races, if you miss the the train, your race is over. So then that whole idea of the delta is out the window. Cause like if you lose 30 seconds of the swim or two minutes, right, then the first half is catching up. And so then, you know, what are you going to do about that later? Right. So, um, so championship racing versus like, um, optimizing your best day out there. And I would say that like, I'm the level of athlete that needs to optimize her best day out there. I'm not a championship racer. So for me, it's, it's pacing like that, like making sure that I don't start too hard so I can run fast. And, and still to this day, like I, like in the, in the past seven Ironmans I've done, which are like my seven best Ironmans to date, they're the ones that are in the calendar year closest. I like changed everything every single time. I have not once done the same thing for any of them. I didn't have the same bike position once this year uh, or last year because I changed my bike position every single race. Um, and like, and, and that's the hard thing about Ironman is that, you know, you can do some practice in training, but it's still not going to replicate what that um, day is. And, and sometimes, you know, you just have to learn by, by doing um, so. And, and it's going to be different for everybody. Mm. what that is some great advice what is some other good advice general advice about anything related to ironman uh whether it's performing on race day or the training part training for an ironman that that you would give um i think so one thing that was a hard lesson for me to learn is that like i i think that there's a lot of advice where salt testing is useless and you know if you eat too much salt then you know it's just gonna show up that way but um if, if the guidelines of like about 500 to 800 milligrams per hour aren't working for you and you just are continually having issues with your nutrition and your stomach just isn't good, you probably need to test that. Like I have like ridiculous salt. I had no idea until this year. And so I'd go to these hot races and I would. What, 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 is, what is your, what is your sodium well, concentration? So I have, so I'm still looking to try and do the precision hydration, like just the, the skin test one. I'd like to. Mm. I'd like to reference that, but I did the leveling test, which, um, really it skews a lot higher. Um, but I am off the charts, like off the charts high, like I'm like 20, whatever the number was, it was like 2,400. And I forget what the, um, very, very, very high. Yeah. Yeah. And it explains why I've passed out like three times at Xterra. Right. So Mm -hmm. in Hawaii, so I like, and then what was happening is in like warmer races, or if I mix my bottles the wrong way for hydration, I was getting like hyponatremia all the time because like this salt thing was just so important. And I just was like, I'm not an idiot. Why is this happening to me? And so I finally tested that. Well, you, if you're out of the range, 
you know, and you, you, if you're just having issues and you're out of the range, get precision hydration or Levelin or one of these companies to like, let you know, like what's going on. And then obviously like just the sweat test is pretty easy thing to do on your own. Just understanding like how much you need to drink. This kind of stuff doesn't need to be tested all the time. Like you're going to be in a, again, a bandwidth of this stuff, but if you at least know where you stand on this, it's going to like save you a lot of time. Um, because like it, every single one of my cratered races is like a failure in this regard um, that I've like been able to like write the ship and not suck as bad when it was really hot. Like Texas, I was in rigor mortis. I had no idea that that was going to happen to me. Um, and I'm going to try again this year. <laughs> so we'll see if I learned anything. Um, okay. So what, and then the, the position, um, I think that would be another thing that I, I'd say to um, like to, to athletes, like, to like, you know, ask the question, like, am I in a good position? Like, and uh, don't just let in, you know, like try and find somebody with some experience to um, take a look at how you're riding your bike, because I think it can save you some injuries too. you know, make sure that your cleats are set up, right. That's the first thing that they should be doing. They shouldn't be like just looking at your position without your cleats. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, I think, uh, regularly getting blood testing to make sure that you're fit for training. Um, I think you want to have like a baseline of, of health. So um, particularly for young women and, you know, like iron status and stuff like that, I think is worth looking at. Um, uh, I think that you should get somebody who understands triathlon to teach you how to swim. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I do these camps for a reason. We, I, I don't have enough of them because uh, I'm still racing, <laughs> you know, maybe after freedom 50, I can offer a few more, but I like the reason I set up these camps is for my group to come to me so that I can help give them solid tools to go and train with. Um, and people just waste so much time going to the pool, um, to hack it out. And I, I think that that's a shame. Uh, and here's another, I'm going to like, this is another controversial thing that, you know, like I should just post it on Twitter cause I'll probably go viral. But, um, I think that if you're going to go to the pool, swim a long time. Like I think that you need two long swims that are very hard. And that is the backbone of your swim program that two times a week where you go there. And if you're swimming Ironman, that's more than 4k. And if you're swimming, um, uh, 70.3, it's still 4k. Um, and you do the bulk of your work in those two swims. Cause think of the amount of time by the time you get like, get in, get your crap and get in your car and go to the pool, like, and then get changed and get on deck and get in the water and swim and then get out, have a shower, get dressed, drive home. It's like the biggest time suck of any triathletes program is going to the pool. So if you're going to go to the pool and swim 2000 meters, like you get in the pool and you're going to swim 30 or 40 minutes and it took you like a multiple of that to get there. That is insanity. Like why? do that. And this whole notion that like triathletes have feel for the water, triathletes don't even know what they're doing half the time when they're in the water. They're just hacking it out. So if you're going to the pool to put paddles and a pool boy on to create feel for the water, like how stupid is that? That is stupid. Okay. So I don't think frequency makes any sense in any way. I also don't think triathletes should use paddles. So that's don't use paddles. That's another thing. Um, so I think you do two long swims that are like the bulk of your program. 
I think you should do a third program that it like mimics your open water type stuff, especially as you get closer to the season. So ideally open water or you do a swim um, that is really based around sort of open water type swimming. Um, and then you can have a fourth one if you love swimming um, or if you're a professional because you just need that little bit of extra fitness or you're a really high end age grouper and you have that time for that fourth one. I think that that fits like I swim for um, and like I may like if I wanted to swim a, a group up, I'd actually need to find faster people to push me. I don't actually need to swim more. I need to be challenged more. And that would mean me going to where faster people are swimming, um, which I'm not willing to do. So I'm just going to swim where I am and do my best and come out where I am, which is pretty good for a non-swimming old lady right? So <laughs> off of four days a week. Um, so I, I don't think more is more for swimming. So that's my like swimming advice. Um, and then I guess the last thing I, I alluded to before, get rid of your orthotics and strengthen your feet, because I think that... Um, that's probably why you're getting injured. Because if it's not your feet doing it, then it's your knees, or your hips, and your injury is moving up the chain. And do you have a worst piece of advice that you've seen for Ironman training, or it can be triathlon in general, or and or some very common, commonly uh, touted bad piece of advice that you see or hear frequently? Okay, land on your midfoot. Like point your toes at the ground and land on your, on your midfoot. Um, uh, don't heel strike, right? So, so I'll 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 qualify both of those. Like landing on your midfoot generally means that athletes are pointing their toes to to attempt to put their foot somewhere. Um, and running is about like applying vertical force. Um, you know, maybe just in front or under the hips, and so you want to absorb that you want to like use your hips to drive your knee up and then like use your hip glute, whatever to push into the ground. But if you point your toes at the ground, it's going to be your ankle and potentially your knee that does all that stabilizing before you actually get to the point of pushing, which more often than not means that athletes that are trying to land on their midfoot under their body are inadvertently landing in front of their body right? They're actually overstriding as a result of that. And it just causes injuries, either to your ankles, to your Achilles, to your toes, to your IT band, like the, it's, it fr it's usually from that. So I think, don't do that. Um, heel striking is fine. Um, I don't think you I think like, what you want to think about doing is basically just tensing your foot so that means like just drawing your almost your just your big toe up to have your foot into dorsiflexion early so you want to like basically approach the ground with your foot looking kind of flat and and this depending on the bandwidth of the athlete um you know they, their their foot might still look like the toe is pointing down but as long as it's tensed to the point where that ankle is engaged to then you know make make your whole leg up to your hip glute absorb the force rather than your like foot and ankle be absorbing it you're fine right so so some athletes they heel strike because they're they they're over flexing their ankle relative to their knee and their hip joints and so that just means their toes are kind of up in the air before they hit the ground but that's as long as they aren't over swinging from their knee and that like 
they are, are sort of landing on the outside of their heel and then they roll through their big toe. They can be biomechanically, you know, within that bandwidth with their toes up in the air and their heels there. It's when it's what the problem with heel striking is when they're like swinging their whole sh- like shin forward in front of their knee um, to try and create stride length rather than um, driving with the hip and getting their knee up in there. Like, and, and this is like this whole like shuffling idea. I see a lot of injuries from like the idea of the Ironman shuffle because athletes are just over swinging from their shins. And, and that's, that's not like you, you want that shuffle to be balanced between your hip knee and, and, and like, you know, ankle angle. You don't want to just, not drive your hip at all and just swing at your knees. That's, that's going to be, that's not good. <laughs> so, mm. um, so it, would you say I, it might not, it's not, not exactly the same necessarily. Um, but the whole Brett Sutton is maybe not the only one, but he's famous for having the whole like Ironman run being basically a, a cadence game and not worrying about, form or what your stride length or anything like that because you're going to be too tired for that especially towards the end of the marathon so so you should focus on uh on stride rate or or cadence what what's your take on that how does this square with how you um how you view running for ironman well i like yeah i I kind of looked at a lot of what his uh, what his advice is and i think his his advice on posture is sound right like i think that you you need to be upright um when when you're running and most people misunderstand like forward lean as like lean at the at the waist versus lean from the ankle and by and large none of the athletes that ever come to me um as triathletes have adequate dorsiflexion to actually lean from their ankles like they they barely have enough dorsiflexion to even land just in front of their body and and you need that there's a minimum Dorsiflexion, like for listeners that don't know what it is, dorsiflexion is basically pulling your toes up towards your shins. Um, you like in order to create like the the most efficient sort of cycling of your legs underneath your hips, you want to like pop back up into dorsiflexion after toe off. So when you're towing off, like at the back of your stride, you're pushing off your foot and then you're in plantar flexion. So just like when you're kicking when you're swimming your toes are pointed as you like push off the ground behind you. And then you want to bring that, those toes up towards your shins as soon as possible so that you're not swinging a long light lever under your body. Um, so that's number one, but in order to like create stride length, you actually need to have, like I was talking about before that rectus femoris and those hip flexors, um, be flex like long and flexible enough, like, or have adequate range of motion that you can actually reach that leg out behind you. Right. So, so some people, uh, that are from a cycling background, for instance, they're, and a lot of men, their hip flexors are so tight that they artificially create this extension out behind them by bending at their waist. And so like by doing that, you tip the pelvis forward and it sort of like artificially makes that leg go further out behind them. And then what happens is because they're stuck in this is it's like, this is a term that's coined all the time on the internet right now. So lots of people have heard it, this anterior pelvic tilt. 
um, allows them to get their, their foot essentially like further behind them. But then what happens is you're stuck in this forward tilt. So that now your knee can't drive up in front of you. You can't get your knee in front because if you bend at your waist, now try to bring your knee up. It doesn't come up very high. It's kind of like you look a lot like when you're in arrow position, right? It's not going to come out in front of you. And so when that knee can't come up and you're trying to create like length of stride in front of you, then what athletes will do is they'll then try and swing their foot out in front of them, right? So instead of their knee getting out and you you actually want your knee out in front and then you want to have that shin be like ideally no more than 90 degrees from your knee, um, it, but instead what they do is they then swing their foot way out in front. And so by and large, what happens is that you then like overstride, like you land on the ground out in front of you, which causes breaking force. Um, it prevents you from pushing vertical force, which is the optimal um, direction of force to create the, you know, power and momentum in your running. Um, and it's like really associated with a lot of injuries. So what Brett is saying about your posture being upright, absolutely. Like you want to, you want to be able to have like, you know, some level of neutral pelvis, like when you're standing so that you can um, create like real hip extension, plus also knee drive in front. And so what he's saying is like, don't worry about the knee drive. Right. And, and so that the, the problem with knee drive is that you have to have strong hip flexors. You know, you have to like, cause you're going to drive your knee with your, with your glute and hip. What a lot of people get wrong about this is they think that what they're doing is they're pulling their knees up in front. So you watch these people who don't understand drills and they're like pulling their knees up um, and doing like a skips or whatever um, as a, like, I'm going to pull my knee up using my hip flexors, right? Your knee comes up using your hip flexors but it's as a result of you pushing down into the ground and reflexively that other leg coming up. So an A skip is pushing into the ground. It's not pulling up with your knee. And so you need to be able to first push into the ground in the right place in order to create that knee drive. And what Brett's done is he's like, forget it. <laughs> We're not even going to try and teach this to people. You're, you're just going to push into the ground, right? Like from a really low amplitude, right? So we're not going to try and push very hard. Um, and we're going to try and keep all this stuff balanced underneath you. But understanding what that balance is underneath a neutral pelvis in order to create that shuffle that he's talking about, because cadence isn't something you create. You don't pick your feet up. It's reactive force from like pushing into the ground. I think all of that messaging is not part, maybe it is. I've never like actually been coached by Brett Sutton, but it's certainly not in any of the stuff that any of the athletes that have come to me from him have told me. Um, so I think just understanding the mechanics behind the shuffle, there are elite marathoners that shuffle very effectively. They understand like what they're trying to do. But I think um, if you're a, an Ironman marathoner trying to shuffle by like, like picking your feet up and bending forward at the waist, um, that's not ideal, right? Like you're, it's, it, it, there are biomechanical inefficiencies in shuffling um, that, you know, need to be unlearned. Got it. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And, and I think it, um, yeah, the, the, the summary might be that, well, for a lot of people, 
it might it might be that the simplest solution is the best is the best one just because it's the simplest uh, even though it's not the optimal one if that if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, i just think understanding what you're trying to do is so powerful yeah yeah i'm I, I'm getting into a bit of a time crunch here, having another call in eight minutes, and I still have one very important question that I want to get to, plus the rapid fire questions. So let's try to do this last one uh, quite quickly. And that is, we talked about how you are now 49 and you're still racing professionally, having had good results and still have some good goals. So what would you say are the keys, and this can be for you yourself, but also for athletes you coach, uh, that have allowed you to stay competitive in your 50s and uh, what you have changed from when you were a younger athlete and and maybe what you have not changed? So can you get into some some brief, uh, concise points about that? Okay, I'll be brief here. Okay, so I, I think that, that my advice would be um, for myself and for anybody else. I think that... Um, what I've told people is that their, their dreams are not big enough that, um, I, like I'm reading a book on happiness and it, it talks about how your brain can, can fool you on what you remember. It fools you regularly on what you're perceiving on a daily basis in the present. And it completely fools you on like what you're going to want in the future. And so it's really important for you to consciously put in your mind what you want to think and what you want to perceive. So if, so for me, um, I believe really strongly that I'm still going to be competitive this year and that the, that like age is not really a factor in terms of my development. It's more the decisions I've made and the execution of races and what I know, um, is going to be so much more impactful than my actual, like, like physical age. And so there's just so much more that I can do if I just start to optimize all these different details that um, factor into a great performance. And so for like women over 40, um, certainly when I was like about to turn 40, the sponsors I had at that time were, I would go out to like dinners and stuff and they would make me feel old at 38. Like they were like, you are ancient, like your career's over. That year I won the inaugural ITU Worlds. I won almost every Xterra I did. I won two set, maybe only one 70.3, but whatever. I qualified for 70.3 Worlds by doing an Xterra on Saturday and Vineman on Sunday. Like I went, so there was nothing about me that was not able to recover or was old that year. It was horrible. I ended up getting all new sponsors and completely changed to Ironman the following year because I was like, you know, F that, like, I'm not, I'm like, I don't feel old. Coaches were telling me I was old. So I think that the underlying part of this is just belief in yourself and your own ability that, that you can still optimize a whole bunch of stuff and you can go faster and just being stubbornly insistent that that's the case. And that that's the only thing for me that I think makes a real difference. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. It, it reminds me of, I just saw recently, there was a new paper published on the 75 plus age category world record holder for, I think, 1500 and 800 meters. Might have been second best for 800, but world record for 1500, maybe 3000 meter indoors, I think, and maybe 5000 meters as well. And the training of, uh, of, of him as well, physiological and training characteristics was the, the the topic of the paper so yeah as as you say like 
age is just a number and and not letting it limit limit your goals or or dreams is is a really powerful uh piece of advice so yeah great uh thank you for that and let's do the rapid fire questions finally and these are the new updated versions for people that have been on the show before so what is your favorite place to train oh that one's tough so i I'd say that St. George is right up there. St. George in the, in the, in the fall, <laughs> in the spring, it's too windy, but um, I really had such a fun time. The people there are amazing. Um, I, I've only done one training camp there, but I was amazed at how incredible that place is. So I think St. George or like Victoria, like the community in Victoria, British Columbia is fantastic. We have so many fast athletes from so many sports here that, um, it's constantly, um, you know, one superstar after another, like you'll run by or ride with. So um, it's a real toss up between home and, and maybe St. George. And uh, what is a bucket list race or event that you would like to do? Uh, so I'm really curious about gravel. Uh, so I think that I want to do some like one of the Belgian waffles because I think the the vibe in these Belgian waffle races seems pretty cool. So I, I don't know if I'm going to make California this year, but I might make the Hell of the North one that's in Victoria. Um, and then I think like in terms of gravel, everyone's been telling me I got to go to Jan's race. So uh, yeah, you wanna, I want to go to S. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it S. Grail or um, yeah, yeah S. Grail? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think what's funny about that is that like Ironman athletes are just starting to recognize how cool Xterra already is. Um, and the, the good thing about the, these like gravel triathlons is they, they make the bike a little more approachable than mountain biking sometimes is for newbies. Uh, so I, I just think that in the future, Xterra is going to probably, um, they should diversify and offer a lot of gravel type races because mm. the vibe in Xterra is like that all the time. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, if you could acquire expert level in any skill in the world in an instant, what would it be? Uh, coach's eye. Like, I, I think that that is a skill that you you need years and years and years of practice. And if I could, you know, have maybe Dan Paths coach's eye, like immediately, I would I would feel like I was that much more confident a coach. Yeah, I had a feeling you would say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh, finally, Mel, where can people follow you and uh, find your work and uh, your coaching? Any any links and social media and so on that people should know about? Uh, let us know. I'm very average at social media. I try. Um, all of my handles are Melrad Coaching. I have a I have a YouTube channel. I have an Instagram, and I have um, a Facebook page. All are Melrad Coaching. Uh, my website is melrad.com. So that's it's it's okay. Um, and then I use Twitter just for my own personal views as a person and a coach um, and interact with other coaches on Twitter as Melanie McQuaid. So um, really, if you want to just see my coaching specific stuff, it's all in Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, like the first one, it was a, a long one once again. And, and again, <laughs> it felt like we could have gone on for a lot longer. Uh, but we'll just have to say that for next time. And definitely. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to see all of your new guests this season. And, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. And be sure to listen to Mel's previous appearance on the podcast back in episode 196, where we talked about Xterra and off-road triathlon training. 
Before we finish, I want to remind you to check out our training camp in Mallorca at the end of March. You can find all the information on scientifictriathlon.com and you can of course email me directly if you want to learn more or register. This camp is a fantastic way to build fitness for the 2023 season and to learn and educate yourself about training by talking and training with us coaches and with your fellow athletes and not least uh, to experience the amazing cycling training and training in general in Mallorca. Uh, there is a reason why World Tour teams like Bora Hansgrohe and Ineos Grenadiers have used and are using Mallorca for their winter training camps, uh, not to mention countless uh, triathletes who do the same. At the moment of recording this, we have uh, seven slots left available and we do expect to sell out the camp i am recording this a couple of weeks before the episode will release so you really don't want to wait too long if you want to register uh, but uh, look at it soon and uh, get your registration in quickly finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further use the code tts23 at checkout for 15 percent off your first order and thank you to form that you can find on formswim.com forward slash tts improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post swim analysis use the code tts15 to get 15% off the form smart swim goggles thank you as always for listening keep training smart keep loving triathlon